Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin with Michigan Law in Chicago, and I'm joined by my co-host today, Rob Hunt, uh, Jim Marty, who uh, had a pretty major announcement for us last week uh, as he moves on to uh, the better, the, the golden years, I guess you could say, of his life in Mesquite, Nevada. Uh, is not done yet, but he is out this week uh, tending to uh, rather large family Thanksgiving issues since the show is actually being taped the day before Thanksgiving, even though you guys are hearing it a few days after. So uh, Jim will be back uh, next week and the week after uh, to say his proper goodbyes. And uh, so we can touch on a few of the highlights of his career. And the truth is, you'll find out that Jim really does have a pretty amazing cannabis career. You know, you can almost call him like the Forrest Gump of cannabis. He was always right there at the right time and, uh, you know, really got his hands on a lot of stuff early on and uh, had a chance to make a name for himself. So uh, that is something to look forward to. But today... Uh, we got all sorts of good stuff to talk about on the marijuana side. Uh, uh, yours truly finally was able to get his hands on some of this new uh, Garcia hand-picked uh, flower, and I've got some comments to give on that. Uh, Rob may have some as well. Um, in addition, there's some uh, new uh, uh, state policy matters involving marijuana going on that we want to touch on. Uh, then, uh, the issue that has just absolutely taken over the world of deadheads, and that is the recently announced Martin, Martin Scorsese movie about the Grateful Dead that's actually going to be a, uh, a biopic and not a documentary. Uh, they're going to actually, it's going to be a, uh, a movie with scripts and the whole nine yards, and we're going to talk about whether that's even right in the Dead universe, and if so, how could it work? Uh, before we get too far down the road here, we are, we're going to highlight just a tremendous, tremendous show today. Uh, a set of shows, actually. In 1973, at the end of November, beginning of December, uh, the Grateful Dead played two shows at the Boston Music Hall. They're, they're just absolutely spectacular shows. Uh, we're going to talk about that, but just to set the mood, Dan, why don't you go ahead and uh, roll the uh, uh, tape here, which is going to be the uh, first night, first song, first set. <laughs> Just uh, for those of you who figured it out, that's the dead opening a show with Morning Dew. Uh, lots and lots to talk about. We will get to it. But first, let's say hello to uh, Rob Hunt out there in hopefully sunny California. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing great, Larry. Uh, speaking to you guys all from the future, I hope everyone had a, a really healthy, happy Thanksgiving. Yeah, and with regard to uh, to our, our good buddy Jim Marty, we will be missing him. I want to point out to all of our listeners that Jim's um, ping pong game and his shrimping game isn't nearly as strong as Forrest's was. But he does have his own skills. <laughs> I'm not sure what what retirement's going to hold for him, but uh, but I think they might have both been at you know prescient places at the appropriate times to uh, to make their careers work the way they did. But I think that James has been more on the uh, the finance side, which happened to be you know kind of on the forefront of all things cannabis for probably the better part of 15 years now. So we'll be missing Jim, and hopefully uh, his career has been strong enough to allow him to enjoy a, a very 
fun life uh, post cannabis, post working in Mesquite, Nevada. Yeah, somehow I'm not too worried about that. But <laughs> we'll see. So great show today. Lots of good stuff. Let's start off on the marijuana side. Something that I'm just very excited about, which is the, uh, I call it new, but I guess if you live on the West Coast, it's not the Garcia hand-picked flower. I was lucky enough a while back to be able to sample some of the Garcia hand-picked gummies in the shape of guitar picks, which appropriate enough, I guess, and seemed good. But to me, the real test for any of these celebrity brands is always going to be what's their flower like, because that forms the the basis for all of this. And I'm happy to say that uh, the um, the sample that was sent to me uh, is a very nice uh, sativa on the back panel. It claims to have a THC level of 31.8%. And for Jerry Garcia, why the hell not? But I, I can tell you that, yes, it, it, it's been very nice. It's very uplifting. It's very flavorful. Although it hasn't caused me to see Jerry, it sure would be nice and is nice to have when listening to him. So, Rob, you are out there in the California world. I don't know if you've had a chance to try some of this yet, but if not, you should really get your hands on it. Yeah, for sure. And I'll tell you, you know, a lot of people don't understand kind of how these celebrity products work. But, you know, usually all they are is the, um, the brand behind it. And oftentimes they're contracting with a group to, uh, to grow on their behalf. I know with Garcia's handpicked, you know, they've contracted with a handful of people the same way that Willie Nelson has done or the same way that, um, that you know, Burner does with cookies. You know, those brands, for the most part, don't grow their own canvas. They just find growers, they think, that are up to snuff and, uh, and take care of it for them. And then they slap their name on it and there's some sort of a royalty or fee sharing agreement that goes along with it. But I can tell you the Garcia family has been very, very involved as a, the holistic guys, which is, you know, Josh Gunderson's team in deciding who it is that's going to grow on their behalf. And I'll say a lot of the uh, the cannabis that's being grown on behalf of the Garcia family is being done by my friends up at NorCal Cannabis. So big shout out to my boy, Justin Benson, who grows some of the best weed in California, and to uh, Jigger Patel and that crew. Uh, so I'm not sure if what you have is coming out of the NorCal facility, but if it is, I can tell you it's, it's one of the you know techiest, nicest uh, cultivations that you'll find anywhere in this country, just straight fire coming out of that place. Uh, this one is from Lantern Farms of Mendocino. There we go. Okay. Very likely a, uh, an outdoor or a uh, mixed light producer that's coming out of Mendo. And it's wonderful. It's just delicious. I know, I, I believe that uh, they have uh, found a licensee in uh, the state of Massachusetts, but I'm not aware of uh, Garcia products uh, having made their way into any other state yet. And, you know, speaking on behalf of the citizens of Illinois, uh, hopefully our uh, otherwise stuck-in-the-mud cannabis program can get its act together and find somebody who uh, is willing to host uh, the Garcias here in Illinois and uh, get some of this product on the market because this is the real deal. This is really good. And I'll just uh, really give a quick shout-out to uh, uh, one of my good friends out on the West Coast. Maybe I shouldn't mention her by name right now, but uh, a good friend of mine who made sure that I would be able to have a chance to uh, – to try out this Garcia handpicked, and uh, it's just been wonderful. So I'm um, going to be finding my way out to California not too long from now and uh, trying to get it all on my own. So, yeah, very tasty and uh, very happy with it. And I know, Rob, you, you're kind of the expert on all this celebrity stuff, and um, you think it has staying power? I do. I mean, I think it's going to get bigger and bigger. I mean, if there's a brand out there that represents kind of like the vibe and the, the ethos of you know what we're trying to represent as a cannabis community, I'd certainly think that the, uh, the the Garcia name is it. I certainly don't think that the popularity of the Grateful Dead and Garcia is going anywhere, as evidenced by the fact that Scorsese is making a movie about you know Jerry right now. I mean, the, the popularity of the, the Grateful Dead brand gets larger almost every year, just through the spread of music across multiple generations. So, you know, if you think which celebrity you know, is kind of a flash in the pan versus which one's at staying power. There's very few of the older generation artists that I think are, you know, great choices to introduce the cannabis brand. Like I wasn't a huge like fan of like Santana doing one, 
but you know, Santana's not Garcia, and, uh, and you know, neither. I mean, Willie Nelson, I respect the guy like crazy. He's not Garcia. I mean, I, I, I always joke about where I don't know a single person that ever dropped out of college to follow Willie. Right. I know a lot of people <laughs> that dropped out of college to follow the Grateful Dead. I don't know anyone that's got, you know, a, let's say a, a picture of uh, Willie on their mantelpiece. I know a lot of people that have a picture of Garcia on their mantelpiece, myself included, yourself included, right? You know, when you think about just like who I have in the background of every room that I'm in, there's there's a picture of the Grateful Dead or a picture of Jerry pretty much in, you know, like in my office, in my in my bedroom, you know, to the point where like, you know, there's a and, and I'm I'm not out of the ordinary. There's tons of us. So do I think there's staying power? The answer is yes, so long as the quality of the brand is good. And what I'll tell you is that, you know, with the Garcia family on this, they have gone way out of their way to say, okay, who are we going to contract with? And they've been very specific about what kind of um, grower they want to support. I mean, they've, for the most part, been going after really high quality organic farmers. They've gone after people that they think, they think share the same values that their family does. It's been important to them to make sure that whoever they're contracting with, it's an extension of you know what they would want to see to be representing the Garcia name and the Garcia family. And I think that's a really important way to, to do this. It's much different then a lot of other people are like, hey, just let's find a good grower. Let's find one that, you know, puts out 30% weed and let's just contract it and try to sell it. This really is, I mean, when they say Garcia's handpicked, it is Garcia's handpicked. Yep. And you can tell, you know, it, it, it looks good. It smells good. It smokes wonderful. It uh, has a great taste to it. Yeah, you know, I mean, I always just, and we'll get to this more when we talk about it in the movie, I'm sure, in a few minutes. But, you know, I always just like to think of Jerry, you know, my image of him off stage is kind of like this giggly guy walking around just, you know, enjoying everybody and everything he bumps into, uh, which I'm sure is my more romanticized version of him. But nevertheless, uh, it's easy to imagine him walking around with a little dugout full of this stuff and, you know, just pausing every little while along the way to take a hit or two of it and, uh, you know, just go out there and, you know, make everybody a little bit happier than they were when, you know, before he walked in the room. So I'm very happy with it and, uh, you know, hope to really see it take off big time and, and make it to this part of the world. Yeah, no doubt. And I think it's going to get bigger and bigger. Yeah. Now, moving right along in the wonderful world of cannabis, it looks like the uh, District of Columbia, Rob, is uh, very shortly going to be able to finally, after a number of years of being held off by a Republican-controlled Congress, uh, going to finally be able to put their adult use plan into action and have adult use in the District of Columbia. Yeah, it's about time. You know, a lot of people I don't think understand that D.C., as it's not a state, technically, even though it's a city with its own city government, its own mayor, and it's got its own you know attorney general and Carl Racine, who's just a great guy, it is still under the, the control of the U.S. government. It's still a federal property, which means that when they want to make major changes, they've got to get the blessing of Congress to do so. And so on certain things, you know, Congress can be exceptionally difficult and, you know, they can essentially stall things out indefinitely. And as we know, D.C. passed adult use cannabis quite a few years ago. So you can't be prosecuted for using it anymore. You can certainly trade it. You can certainly hand it to your friends. You can certainly possess it. But there is no place to actually buy or sell it. So, you know, the big question for a long time is why not? And I think we can pretty squarely point to one guy who's a, a congressman out of Maryland um, who I'll refer to as a real dick, and his name is Andy Harris. Andy Harris has been a, a huge pain in the ass to the cannabis industry for years. He's a relatively insignificant member of Congress who doesn't have a great reputation. He's just kind of a jackass in a lot of the things that he's done uh, in his political career. But one of his great claims to fame is he's been the person that single-handedly held up the ability to, um, to allow for a commercial program to happen in Washington, D.C. And it looks like we're, we're finally getting past the, the Andy Harris filibuster. So it's it's great news that this is happening. 
It is, and it, you know, it's it's really a shame, and you know, it's not typically our uh, our our job or our interest in going around and singling out individual members of the government, but in this case. I think that we would be remiss if we didn't point out Andy Harris and all the harm and damage he's caused to the cannabis industry for reasons known only to him. And and I'm not sure that he's ever, you know, really provided any reasons at all, let alone reasons that would even have a modicum of common sense to them. Uh, and I think you're right, Rob. I think a lot of it's grandstanding. I think a lot of it's, I want to be the guy who's the fly in the ointment and, you know, DC's democratic and we don't like them. And so, uh, we're going to go ahead and we're going to really screw around with this. And it's really a shame because the District of Columbia, of course, for years has also been known as a place that has, you know, a, a relatively high crime rate. And to think that we might finally be able to find a way for cannabis to be sold legally in the District of Columbia, uh, I would hope that that would be something that all members of Congress would have no problem getting behind and supporting, you know, and, and allowing that money to come in. And just like in every other city, you know, to the extent that D.C. needs help and assistance with things, now you're generating income where that money can be used for those kind of things. Otherwise, you know, everybody's being deprived all around the game. And, and you're right, it's typically one guy who just wants to hold up the ropes. Although I note they said that this year he didn't even bother to make to, to propose an amendment uh, because he didn't want to have to face the publicity of being voted down, uh, you know, by a committee that's now overwhelmingly Democratic, um, you know, and taking that hit on the chin. So, you know, he had some muttering small talk afterwards. Uh, but you're right. I think that, that at least for the moment, that era is over and, and D.C. can now, you know, get on with its game. First of all, I'd love you throw a Visions Johanna reference into your uh, your speech there, muttering small talk. <laughs> um, second, if, if Andy Harris wants to be a, um, uh, a pain in the ass, go be a pain in the ass in Baltimore. You know, go do it somewhere else. Go do it in your own district. Go do it, you know, where, where you actually have a, um, uh, a reason to say I'm representing my constituents. You have zero tie to Washington, D.C. outside of the fact that you're an elected member of Congress. So outside of that, I don't understand when voters clearly, clearly spoke in D.C. that they wanted this. As I said, you've got an attorney general in D.C., a guy named Carl Racine, who was very, very strongly in favor of cannabis progressive policy, you know, largely because at the time when he was looking at it, there was a great deal of issues with bodegas selling K2 and Spice and the other synthetic cannabises. They're actually killing people. And he wanted to make sure that there was a safe alternative in real cannabis that could be uh, sold. And, uh, and, and again, it was just, you know, one person that, you know, came in and, and by the way, he, you know, I can single out Harris all I want on this specific issue, but he's not any different than, than Kevin Sabet is over at uh, smart approaches to marijuana or, you know, the way that um, Patrick Kennedy is on this issue. I mean, these guys, whatever their rationale is for deciding that they don't like this. I mean, to call an organization smart approaches to marijuana, when all you're trying to do is kibosh an industry and you're trying to say, oh, no, no, we're not doing that. We're just trying to take an incremental approach and we have to do this in a very measured way. It's nonsense. If you've ever heard the guy debate anyone, you've ever heard what his, um, his policies are. He has one goal in mind, and that's to try to take down the cannabis industry. And what I'll say is it's been really fun to watch over the last 10 years as Kevin Sabet's got his ass handed to him in debate after debate with guys like Ethan Nadelman or, or guys like, you know, for a while, Rob Campia. Sabet has, has no good arguments. And I don't think that Harris does either. So now that you're actually seeing the tide turn and actually you're actually seeing committees that are run by Dems, okay, so what are the Republicans doing now? Look, it's great they're introducing their own reform policies, and that's probably why Harris is, uh, is no longer able to do this. But yeah, there wasn't a chance in the world that D.C. wasn't going to push this through with a Congress right now that would have been very supportive. So again, hats off to the people of D.C. I would personally love to see these uh, people get a heck of a lot more representation in Congress just in general. 
I think it's terrible that when you have a country founded on no taxation without representation, you've got you know people in D.C. that you know represent a larger block of constituents than the than the state of Wyoming or the state of Vermont, not having equal representation in in the country, and basically being treated like second class citizens whose fate is determined by 538 members of Congress that tell them what they can and can't do, or sometimes just one asshole. Right, or just one one douchebag, as as well. You know, the name may fit. So, yeah, that that's a good thing to know. Um, You know, glad that that's moved forward, and uh, uh, that little scourge has been put behind them. And hopefully, DC will not make good use will now make good use of that, and uh, you know, really develop a program. And you know, the next time everybody wants to go insurrect at the Capitol, if they stop and smoke a few joints first, uh, you know, we might avert the whole thing. So. Um, you know, we'll, we'll keep that in mind as well. One other policy thing that I know you and I wanted to touch on, Rob, is what's happening in Pennsylvania right now with respect to uh, one of the uh, boards that oversees the marijuana program uh, and their desire to recall for further testing uh, what they're calling you know, vapable products, such as, uh, you know, the shatters and all the extracts and everything. What do you know about that? I mean, look, all I can say is, oi vey. Like, haven't we been through this before? <laughs> haven't we seen this, like, play out before? I mean, this is the same question that we dealt with in California in 2019 during the height of Vapegate, where, you know, companies like Select were uh, infusing a lot of their vape carts with botanical terpenes. It came out afterwards that the things that were causing problems were largely from the illicit market, not the legal market. And they're usually based on vitamin E acetate or propylene glycol or other cutting agents that were being used to, to help with viscosity. But ultimately, we've already seen this play out. We've already seen, you know, the, the whole question about, okay, what additives are going into your vape products? What additives are going into your concentrates products? If, if anything is being, you know, put in there, Pennsylvania should have already taken a page out of California's book. They should have reached out to California and said, hey, you guys have already dealt with this. How did it turn out before we waste a lot of time and energy? <clears throat> what we're seeing right now in Pennsylvania is, is essentially tantamount to a recall of a ton of product that's going to have to be retested, uh, re-looked at before it's put back on the shelf. And it's going to cost a handful of companies, primarily about five or six major companies, millions and millions of dollars to comply with what Pennsylvania has now arbitrarily decided is in the best interest of the consumer. And I'm all for safety in cannabis. Like, don't get me wrong. I want everything tested. I want everything you know, labeled properly. I want everything done by the book. But at the same time, you can't put forward a um, analytical standard and then ultimately backtrack on it because you're getting cold feet as to what you decided. Unless there's actually like evidence that there's harm being caused, which to date I've seen nothing from Pennsylvania suggesting that there is, then again, this is an arbitrary decision being caused by um, you know powers that be for really other no, no other reasons than disruption. I couldn't agree with you more. It's uh, you know, and we've seen a little bit of that in Illinois too, where there's been talk of uh, even on the hemp side of the, the need for double testing and things like that. And, and it just seems to me uh, to be completely unnecessary. You know, there's no other industry that goes through that level of scrutiny. And while I can understand that people might be a little bit skeptical of, of cannabis at first and they want to, you know, before marijuana is going to be sold, they want to make sure they know and understand all of these kind of things. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, you reach a point where safety is no longer the issue and interference becomes the issue. And I think that we've certainly reached that. I, I have... Uh, many people here in Illinois who tell me, you know, they will never allow their, you know, as their kids grow older, they'll always tell them, don't smoke vapes. Vapes are dangerous. Vapes can kill you. Look what happened in New York. And as a guy who represents people who manufacture vapes, that just, that kills me, right? Because 
a black market shipment comes in, uh, it gets used. That's unfortunate. I don't mean to minimize the the the, the loss and the and the human suffering that resulted from it, but you know that's just another reason to as quickly as we can, you know, pull the market out of the black market side of things and really get us to a point where we can undergo proper testing and all of this under reasonable standards that are applied to every other product that's out there, right? There's no reason to test marijuana any more uh, significantly than you would test beer or you would test alcohol. And to sit there and to say that, uh, uh, oh, well, now we're really concerned about this without really being able to say anything other than, ooh, people died, so you're scaring everybody. Uh, and that's moving backwards in terms of normalizing THC, and, you know, you're right, it's, it's crazy that states keep doing this in the face of how much uh, uh, tax uh, revenue is being generated, as well as the ever-mounting evidence that shows that states that have gone adult use don't turn into, you know, the back end of a Grateful Dead show. They don't turn into a fraternity party. Uh, you know, they don't turn into Skid Row. Uh, in fact, they don't really change very much at all, uh, except everybody swears now that they can all smell marijuana everywhere all the time. You know, I'll be walking down the street with somebody who'll say, can't you smell it? No, I don't smell any right here. Oh, it's everywhere. Well, you know, you kind of think it's everywhere, but it's not really everywhere, but you'll get used to it, you know, and you'll figure it out. And, you know, the sooner we can get there, the better. This just pushes us in the wrong direction. Agreed. But I would like to take a moment to remind us that, you know, 30 plus years ago, right around this time of year, we had ads coming out from the ad council. And I'll read you one from the late 80s around Thanksgiving. It said, Thanksgiving, remember the cranberry sauce, but forget the marijuana. And then it shows, shows a picture of two guys and says, Terry was convinced to take a toke of a joint with his friend just to relax. Immediately after, Terry killed his friend who had given him marijuana in a murderous craze. Not so safe, is it? Marijuana, not even once. That was put out by the Ad Council. In what year? In the late 80s. This is the height of the, uh, the Just Say No era. Right. Once again, it's... All the people who laugh at uh, reefer madness, but yet continue to live their lives as though every word of it were true. Yeah. So I guess my point is we've come a long way. And the fact we're arguing whether or not, you know, it's uh, ridiculous that Pennsylvania is going back and asking for you know additional information. OK, I find that ridiculous in today's standards. But if you look back at, you know, really not very long ago in history, the fact that you're being told that Terry's murdering his friends in a, in a murderous craze <laughs> after taking just a toke of marijuana. We've come a long way, so it's nice to see. Oh, we have. Look, and I like that approach, right? That's I like to say that you know, you know, marijuana has succeeded when you start getting overregulated by the government, you know, and they they do do it with other industries. I I guess what drives us crazy, at least you know, those of us who pay attention and have a little bit of an understanding of what's going on is that it, everything that underlies it is it, it's just one big hypocrisy, you know, one big false lie. You know, you want to talk about fake news and, and false lies. This one's been out there, you know, since Richard Nixon in the 1970s when we were finally ready to move out of the uh, reefer madness era. And all of a sudden, somehow marijuana became the most dangerous drug on the planet, even though nobody's ever died from, you know, smoking too much marijuana. So, you know, we've, we've, got a, we've got a lot of hurdles we have to overcome. Uh, but, you know, I think that we're moving in the right direction. And, uh, you know, the industry will continue to go. And maybe the best thing that comes out of Pennsylvania is if they go back and waste all their time doing all this testing and find out that, yeah, it's exactly what we thought it was from before, that somewhere along the way they build up enough confidence to say, okay, we just don't have to do this anymore. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and by the way, I'm a lot more concerned in the late 80s where Parquat was probably the thing that was, you know, inside your cannabis than any additive that's going into your vape product. So, 
I agree. So let's talk about – Although – we, enough about that. I agree. Let's move on. Yeah. Let's move on. Let's talk about some fun stuff, man. You know, I think in the last week we've gotten one of the greatest announcements uh, that, that we can hope for. It's I think everyone's waiting with bated breath to see who it is. But Marty Scorsese, man, like the, the, one of the greatest directors of all time, um, now jumping in to take a second stab at a Grateful Dead-related project and uh, and coming into um, to to do a movie that's going to start Jonah Hill as Garcia, which I'm hearing a lot of people that don't seem to be too satisfied about. But look, I'm going to start this off by saying. I trust Marty Scorsese. Scorsese's like he's cast. Look, I mean, like, look, this is the guy that, that that basically brought like De Niro into our lives, and brought Pesci into our lives, and brought like Leo DiCaprio has like worked with so many times, and Damon's worked with so many times, and you name like other other actors of you know multiple generations that are considered to be you know terrific. You look at Goodfellas, man, and like he has paired great music with great film for so many years. That for him to make the determination of let's choose Jonah Hill, who, by the way, Todd Phillips, who made, you know, Joker, also did Fish's Bittersweet Motel movie. He cast him, you know, Jonah as, you know, the number two person in Wolf of Wall Street. You know, this this is a guy that doesn't get the credit, I think, a lot of times as, a, as an actor. But I actually have seen the demo reel that he's used. And I think I sent it to you, Larry. He does a good Garcia, man. This is like this is going to be, if nothing else it's going to get people to the theaters. Right. Well, I would agree with that. I mean, look, I'll be very happy, you know, to drop something and go to the theater and check it out for a couple of hours and see where I come away with it. Here's, here's the issue that I ultimately have with it. And, you know, maybe I'm just being a selfish deadhead when I say this, because it probably applies to anything. It's one thing to make a documentary, right? It's one thing to go back and say, we're going to, we're going to tell you the story of the grateful dead using Jerry Garcia, using all of their own words, right? Actual interview, with the people, actual footage that shows what they were doing and how they were doing it. And to me, that's a lot different than what's going to happen here, which is going to be a, a biopic, right? Which is fiction, fiction based on reality. But here's the thing. We're going to have writers, and, and I'm sure they're all good writers. I don't doubt that. But we're going to have writers imagining what these guys said or did at crucial moments in their history now, some of it's well documented, and, and my understanding is that the guys in the band are all going to, you know, help out from time to time, or you know, uh, oversee and provide advice and counsel and whatever. But I'm just imagining: are we going to have the scene in Phil Lesh's apartment where they drop the OED on the floor and it opens up to Grateful Dead? And you know, I I it, I think every deadhead in the world has their own idea of how these things went down, what Jerry said, what he looked like, how he felt. And I realize that every great historical thing has been ultimately made into a movie, you know, with actors who come in and do it. But, you know, we just as deadheads have to be able to accept the fact there's probably going to be a certain amount of artistic license. And, uh, you know, it, it just may not mesh with the views that we've developed over the years as to how all of things played out. But having said that, I agree. Martin Scorsese's, you know, he's the man. He's made some great uh, rock documentaries. You know, he certainly knows what he's doing. If there was any, if you were going to say a Garcia movie, uh, a, a Grateful Dead movie, I would tell you that uh, get Marty Scorsese and then I'll listen. So they did. So fine. And, you know, look, Jonah Hill, why not? I mean, somebody's got to play him. And if Jonah Hill can pull it off, that's great. I, you know, I, I remain to be convinced by that, but and then I kind of jokingly suggested, you know, what the hell is wrong with Warren Haynes? I mean, he looks like Jerry. He sounds like Jerry. He plays his own guitar, right? I mean, I, it, it is Joe, I don't know if Jonah Hill has musical chops or not. Maybe he does. I, I just don't know. But like I say, it could just be that I'm an overprotective deadhead, you know, who's really pissed off that somebody's going to tell the story in a way that isn't the way that I would necessarily tell it. Yeah, look, I mean, I think in the perfect world, we'd rather have like a 30-part miniseries 
that covers you know each year of the uh, of the Grateful Dead's history and reduces that to a couple key moments. There's no way you can take a 30 year career and the career. I mean, I'm guessing because this is largely a Garcia biopic that it's going to be concentrating on his early life, how he lost his finger, you know, his early life with Tiff and his father and growing up in the mission. I'd expect there's going to be a certain portion of that before it gets to you know hitting the you know, meeting the other members of the band in Palo Alto and then taking off on the road and going to the acid test. But even if you were to reduce this down to like, you know, the base elements, which in a two hour movie, I think they have to do. It's crazy to me what they are going to pick out and say, all right, which are the most important parts of this? And who else are they going to get in there? You know, as I said, you know, to you via email, we have to expect that, you know, we're going to get Hell's Angels, we're going to get Mary Pranksters, we're going to get, you know, Jefferson Airplane and Janice and Grace Slick, and there's going to be Bill Graham and there's the like I'm not, I'm not so concerned about who's playing Garcia. I want to know who's playing everyone else. I want to know how this is all being melded together. I want to know is this only covering the early years and stops in like '73, '74, and then kind of shows like just towards the end very briefly. Because you look at a lot of these great movies in the first part. I mean, like let's let's look at like you know Below as a classic example. The first three quarters of that movie are fun and exciting and really enjoyable, and the last quarter is like, oh man, that sucks. You ruined it, you know. And there's a lot of movies like that. Where like the everything's great until it's not, and then that's kind of the thing that that ends it. I'm just afraid they're going to do the same thing, where it's going to be the all this euphoric stuff through like 1985, and then from like the time that like you know the diabetic coma forward will be a um you know kind of like a sad ending to a uh, to an amazing career, and that's the part like you know I probably don't really care much about seeing. I want to see like you know I want to see the hate Ashbury scenes. I want to see you know all the stuff and and you know getting the band together and being creative and writing great songs. Yeah, all that stuff. Uh, look, I agree with everything you say. I, th- I think that that all has potential, but you're right. I mean, you can't even begin to touch it. So then that rate, you know, is this going to be, you know, part one of a three-part series? <laughs> part two will take us through the sun. You know, well, that's what you said. It And, and it almost has to be that way because you're right. I mean, uh, otherwise it has to be, you know, a very well-defined time period. And I think if you want to give backstory on Garcia and any of the other guys he wants to even, you know, spend a few minutes on, That'll easily take up the first hour of your movie, you know, and then what are you going to do? Go through the whole jug band, warlocks, you know, first shot. If you're just going to run through that in 25 minutes, you know, with like a flipping calendar page, you know, then, you know, that's going to be disappointing too. But we'll see. Once again, it's Marty Scorsese. I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. I heard that the guys who are doing the writing are a really, really good group and that they've, you know, had some good experiences before. One of them, I think, worked on the Doors movie. You know, look, I'll I'll wait for the trailers to come out and then we'll all take a look at it and decide. Yeah, I mean, it's funny you say it because, like, look, I'll I'll put Marty Scorsese and Jonah Hill up against um, Oliver Stone and Val Kilmer any day of the week, right? You know, and it's like the the doors, you know, like some people love the movie, some people didn't much like the movie. What I'll tell you is that, you know, as you said, as soon as you say get Marty Scorsese, I'll take it seriously. I would agree. I mean, if, if I want a rock and roll documentary, I turn to Albert Mazel's. If I want a, uh, a a great film that's going to you know inspire me and just kind of be my kind of like film that I want to see, I, I turn to Marty. That's kind of where uh, where I want to see it. So I am super excited about this. I think more and more is going to come out about it as new cast members are announced. I, I think we'll be talking about this for many episodes to come until this thing comes out. So and then many more after that. Yeah, Godspeed, Marty. God, you know, go get it. Uh, and by the way, if you're, if you're looking for an extra, you're looking for, you know, any sort of uh, person that wants to you know come to the set and hang out. I'm your guy. I'm available. You know, check my Twitter handle and uh, come see, <laughs> get in touch. 
Absolutely. You know, you want real deadheads? All of us will be more than happy to go out and, and re, re, reprise our roles. Jerry always said we were, we were an integral part of the scene. So you can't go, you know, you can't skimp on the deadheads either, you know, so, but yeah, it's going to be great. There's so many, you know, Mountain Girl and just all of them who are going to come in and play all of these key people, Keezy, everybody who just, you know, if you're going to tell the story, they have to be part of it. And who's making cameos? Like, I don't think you can make this film without cameos by a lot of band members. That's what I was, yeah. I I, I think for sure there's going to be some cameos. There almost has to be. Um, you know, and who knows, maybe towards the end, you know, of, of the career, they, you know, they cut to li- actual live footage of the dead or something, which, you know, they, they've all been known to do from time to time. So we'll see. Um, you know, it's going to be very interesting, though. I, I imagine, uh, you know, that Scorsese's able to nail down all the, the rights to the music that he needs to use. And, um, you know, from there, it's just, you know, good luck, guys, and we'll be waiting. For sure. You picked out a great show for us to uh, to talk about. We don't get too many December um, shows just because the Grateful Dead didn't really play too many uh, December shows. You know, they kind of started shutting things down around Thanksgiving until you got to the New Year's run. But this is the time of the year, much like everyone else in the country, where they spend time with their families and spend time, you know, kind of off the road. So it's hard to find picks that, you know, really are matching up kind of around the date of when we're actually releasing a show but you picked out a, uh, a stellar one. Yeah, thank you. These are two shows, like we said, from um, from the uh, Boston Music Hall, which is a venue, quite frankly, in Boston that I'm not particularly familiar with. I've uh, never been there, never saw it. You know, everyone knows the Boston Garden. You know, if you've ever uh, watched a hockey game or a Celtics game, you know the old garden, you know the new garden. Plenty of uh, magical dead moments in, in both the old and the new garden. But the Boston Music Hall was the site for these two shows right at the end of November, beginning of December. At the end of 1973, which, you know, we've all talked about from time to time as really being a pinnacle year for the band uh, in terms of the way they were playing and sounding and, uh, you know, everything really coming together for them as part of this new uh, sound after they had kind of, you know, walked away from the primal dead uh, of the late 60s and very early 70s. But yet what I love about this show, uh, you know, is it mixes in so much still of the old with the new, right? So the very first night, first song, first set, morning dew. I mean, that's as, that's as classic Grateful Dead as you can get, uh, you know, and it pulls out and Jerry just does a great job of it. Are, are you familiar with any other shows, Rob, where they actually open the show with a morning dew? I'm not. And I can tell you that, you know, if you were to say, pick your favorite Grateful Dead song, we've talked about this before, morning dew for me is top three. I could listen to it, you know, they, they could they could play it for the whole first set and I'd be delighted. So to have them as an opener, like if I ever saw a morning dew opener, it would have completely and totally blown my mind. Yeah, the closest I can... Th- come to that is um at the uh, 20th anniversary greek theater shows the first night they opened the second set with morning dew which really kind of surprised everybody and was you know fun and great because it just it was totally out of place for where anybody you know really anticipated it at that moment and it was wonderful but never as a show opener you know and i always think of morning dew as one of those songs that you know by the time they play they have to have brought the crowd into like this special space you know that that you can usually only get to by a rip roar and second set and a really kind of cosmic drums and space sequence. And, you know, then maybe you're able to just really dump right into a, uh, to a deep do, but just to, to come out very first song, first set and kick right into it, boy, that's not easy. Yeah. I mean, usually like coming out of like any miracle or coming out of um, like a going down the road or, or a, um, you know, second set post space Bobby tunes, Usually I found myself sort of sitting there going, please play do, please play do, please play do, please play do. You know, just hoping that you'd hear the bow, 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 ba da 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 And, you know, like that that's the moment that you wait for 
Like you're counting back in your head going, okay, they played a, uh, a Standing on the Moon last night and a Stella Blue the night before and a Warfare the night before. Like we are due for a dude. Like the, a dude's got to come here soon. Like as a deadhead, you, you were trying to time shows. Like, okay, when was the last time they played do? Just so you could actually get one. Well, and it's funny that you say that because as a result, I always think that there's a lot of great, uh, you know, tunes out there that wound up getting short shrift just because they weren't due, you know, like in that sequence you just laid out, my experiences is do, 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 and then they play Black Peter and then everybody would be like, oh man, I love Black Peter. It's a great song, but when you're in that do moment and you think this is just the song I need to hear, anything else is, is almost a letdown. It's just, it's so special of a song and, um, you know, they come out with great energy and, and one of the really fun parts of this, uh, two night run and just to show that the boys do have a little bit of a sense of humor is the second night, December 2nd, they closed the entire two night run with the two. So they bookended their show front and end. Yeah. Which I think is amazing. So, you know, we've talked about before where they've opened, you know, a run with the sugar mags and then closed with a sunshine daydream, you know, and bookended that way. But to, to do a two night run or, you know, that, that short a period, and do a do on either side. That's it's amazing. And, and again, I still think pound for pound, the most powerful song the Grateful Dead play as far as the sheer power. There's nothing like the buildup coming out of the uh, or the second buildup, I should say, in a morning do. Right, the first five minutes of it, yeah. you know. And some people say, "Oh, it's kind of slim. Just wait, just wait, just get in the flow." And all of a sudden, you're there. And and we'll hear that on our way out of the show. So as uh, as we're signing off today, everybody, please be sure to listen along. And, you know, if you're there for two nights, I mean, to, to hear do two nights in a row under any circumstance would be amazing. Uh, but to hear it, you know, as an opener for the first night and a closer for the second night, is too unbelievable. That's when you go home and think, man, Jerry just loves me. He just knew I was here and he just decided that we're going to just lay it all out for you, man. And, and that's wonderful. But really, Rob, for me, I mean, that's just kind of like, you know, a tip of the iceberg uh, in terms of some of the other stuff that you get out of these shows. And and, and for me, a, a real highlight is the uh, the second night, the December 2nd show. And they just go through this amazing run coming out of a mind left body jam into he's gone, trucking, nobody's fault but mine, another jam, Stella, Sugar, and then finally the morning dew, right? And you just hear all of that. And it's, it's almost overwhelming, um, you know, to hear where they go and, and, and how they just, you know, how all these songs come together and they're all such great jamming tunes that everybody just loves to listen to and, and they just blow you away with it. Well, I'll go a step further than that. The first set, first set from the second night, I can't think of another time where I can think of a, at least not in my era, where there's a four, first set war frat and a, and a half step to end the first set. So, you know, super fun there as well, as well as like a beer barrel, beer barrel polka, which happened, um, I think, after the brown eyed. So, you know, lots of fun there. And I think the first night, the first set is, um, you know, a, a really solid, fun first set as well. That's as like pure 1973 as they come outside of the Morning Dew opener. But the Mexicali, Direwolf, Black-Throated, Donies, Big River, they love each other playing. Very solid first set. And then like true 73 songs with Here Comes Sunshine, Weather Report, Sweet, and Eyes in the second set. Yep. And, and then in the midst of all of that, as we were talking about last week, and how the dad like to just, you know, either drop in blues tunes or other little, uh, you know, Americana covers that they play. One of the favorite covers that they've done that I always love when they do it on the December 2nd show in the first set is The Race Is On. 
that's you know Bobby doing that is just uh, is just a great tune too, and and they do drop that in there, and uh, it's wonderful to listen to. And I mean, you're right. I mean, that, that that first set is just an unbelievable first set that goes on and on forever. That's almost like 15 or 20 tunes. And I have to tell you, I, I, I never experienced a first set like that. Um, you know, for us, we were always happy if we got, you know, anything over an hour was, you know, bonus time. And we, we did have some really, really killer first sets. But, you know, if you're, if you're at a dead show and, and they, the first set has 15 to 20 tunes in it, it almost doesn't matter what they played, right? I mean, that's just or, like... I remember having nice with six song first sets. I mean, like, what just happened? How did they just like... And like the last one being like, uh, like a really short one, like a don't ease, where you're like, really? Like... That doesn't even count. That's a throwaway. You threw in a me and my uncle and a Donies. Like how that's that clocked in at forty eight minutes. Right, exactly. Yep. And there's no doubt, you know, and, and you know, we talked a little bit about this with David Gans earlier when he was on our show a month or two ago, you know, and how things, you know, from the perspective of, you know, an observer like David Gans, who, you know, is probably as tied into the Grateful Dead as anybody. And, you know, even some of the, I don't want to say disappointment, because I was, never that I was disappointed by the Grateful Dead, but just kind of always for a lo- maybe more of a longing of the way things were and a surprise at, you know, where they had gotten to, you know, and, and we talked about this last week at Deer Creek, right? Both the, the first night was a, a drum space and then two songs encore. The next night they threw in a not fade away to make it post drums and space, three songs in an encore, you know, as compared to the show from Henry Kaiser, where after the space in 85, you know, they played at least another hour of music, you know, to, to hear those just long extended jams where, you're just exhausted and you think they can't possibly go anymore. And then they just go on again. And somehow you find the energy and, you know, when they finally do stop, you're ready to fall over. You're just like, this was unbelievable. This was the night to be there. And, you know, we always, we always joke about, you know, miss a little, miss a lot. You know, these were two shows that if you were in the Boston area or had any chance to be there, you did not want to miss. I will tell you a little bit about the venue too, because you, you might not be familiar with it, but it was right down the street from my law school. It was on Tremont Street, you know, five, four or five blocks from where I went to law school. It's now called the Line Theater. Uh, it used to be called the Boston Music Hall, but it, it, it's hosted. I mean, it was the home of the Bolshoi Ballet for a long time. It was the home of the um, of the Kirov Ballet, the the Stuttgart Opera, the Metropolitan Opera. The acoustics inside this place are exceptional, like truly, truly exceptional. There's two or three great theaters in the theater district of Boston, and the Wang, which was the Boston Music Hall, is certainly one of them. So it only holds 3,600 people, but it's a terrific small venue that's kind of your old Victorian era, you know, venues which we've talked about from the San Francisco perspective, you know, eight months ago. But we forget there's some other great theaters in other big cities like New York obviously has them. But Boston's got a handful of ones that are just like fantastic midsize, you know, indoor um, built for orchestras, built for great acoustics theaters. And it was just a great spot for the Grateful Dead to play. Yeah, I think that that's right. I think it really is a great spot for the Grateful Dead to play. And, and they're inspired. You can tell uh, just how inspiring it is. And and, and here, uh, we, we have another clip that uh, I'm going to ask Dan to queue up for us. And just to give you, you know, 30 seconds of background, we're still on November 30th, uh, but now we're in the second set. And uh, as part of this mix, and this is the, you can't ask for much more beautiful, you know, yin and yang than this, you know, the end of a, of, of a wonderful dark star jam into the beginning of a 1973 eyes, which were just uh, amazing. Uh, Dan, go ahead and run that, please. Thank you. 
that's, that's some straight, very prominent Billy Kreutzmann drumming. Oh my goodness. Yes. But you know, it, you look at the crowd reaction, you know, they, they know what's going on. You know, they, they've, they've just come out of this amazing dark star jam and here's Jerry, you know, diamond. And by this point in 1973, eyes was well known. It, it had been out for a while. People knew it. And it was a fan favorite from day one, you know, and it's such a great sound for them. It just, you know, but it just got released on the album. I think it just it just came out for the masses. Well, it, it actually is uh, Dick's Picks number fourteen. Right. But, I mean, I mean, at, at the time when they played this in in Boston, I think it had just come out on Wake of the Flood as the as the release. Yes, correct. I'm sorry. Yes, yes, yes. That's correct. Yes, the Wake of the Flood, and yeah. So I mean, it was all you know. For the, as far as the Dead were concerned, you know, they were at the height of their game with it. You know, they had just perfected it. You know, they were bringing it to the people now, and and everybody ate it up. But yes, but but. Both of these shows are, are the two shows that make up Dick's Picks, uh, Volume 14. So for those of you who might be younger, before Dave's Picks, there was Dick's Picks. And Dick Ladvala, uh, you know, is really the all-time master of the vault. And even David Lemieux will admit to that. Um, not that uh, David's uh, too much behind him in terms of skill and talent, but Dick was just a, uh, a special person in all of his releases all 36 of the dicks picks releases are, are just i have all of them i listen to all of them and each time i hear something new and then you read dick's notes and and it's great and he just raves about both of these shows as being you know two of his favorite 1973 shows and it's it's very easy to hear why no doubt and that's why i love going back and, and listening to all the recordings that the band has put out and you know, obviously a lot of other bands now do things immediately following shows and put them out, you know, instantaneously. But for the amount of recording that we had from the Grateful Dead, to be able to go back and clean up so many copies of so many great shows and then be able to put them out on, you know, near studio quality. I mean, it's such a far cry from how we grew up trading tapes to, you know, what's accessible today. And I agree, Dick really, really changed the game for all artists when he started doing this. I agree with everything you say, although I I will say, you know, that there, there was something special about, you know, opening up a box, digging through a big thing of tapes, finding that one tape you really wanted to listen to, popping it into the tape player, hoping this time it didn't choke it up and, and ruin your tape. And, uh, you know, I, I have 500 cassette tapes lying around somewhere. I'm sure that my wife wants me to get rid of, but you know, the tapes themselves mean something, not even just the music on them, you know, assembling them all and, and the stories that went behind. Well, we'll have to do a show sometime on taping because, uh, there's, there's some really great stories behind that. But, yeah, the fact that, you know, that we have access to all of this amazing Grateful Dead music is just uh, outstanding. You know, and, 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 you know, even for, you know, an old fart like me, uh, this was before my time. So, uh, you know, all the all my kids and their generation who all say, oh, well, you know, Jerry was before my time, not for you. True, but, you know, we, we got the second half of it. And, and we didn't get these, you know, powerful shows from uh, the late 60s and early 70s that, you know, really uh, helped define who the band became and, uh and we're such an important part of its history. But uh, this is a, this is a really good one to listen to. And I'd like to point out to the audience that as soon as Jim leaves, Larry is officially the old guy. So I'll make sure <laughs> everyone knows out there that you know it's uh, you're taking over the mantle, the, uh, the appointed uh, elder statesman of the show. Well, you know, as the oldest brother and oldest grandson and all that crap, I've I've been fulfilling that role for a number of years now. So I'm only happy to finally be able to do it uh, with something that. Uh, really turns me on like this. So for God's sakes, let's have at it and uh, have some fun with the Grateful Dead and everything going forward. Um, Wonderful uh, music to listen to. Uh, So I think that's everything on my end. Rob, you got anything more? No, I just hope that everyone out there is really starting to enjoy their holiday season and getting into the spirit of uh, closing out 2021 strong. But uh, we sure are over here. So make sure you stuff your um, stockings and 
other gifts with Dave's picks and Dick's picks and uh, as much cannabis as you can put in someone's stocking for adult use. And uh, have a great holiday season. We'll see you next week, and we'll count down the last couple weeks of 2021 with you. Excellent. Thank you so much, Rob. Appreciate that, as always. Uh, we will talk to you guys next week. We'll have lots of uh, more uh, great stories to talk about, shows to talk about, uh, the latest going on in cannabis, and uh, the second installment of the uh, Jim Marty Farewell Tour. We'll be excited to have Jim back and uh, be able to go over all of that stuff. So uh, on the way out uh, here, what we're going to do now is leave you with, of course, the only thing that would make sense in this situation, and that's the... Uh, the morning due from December 2nd, 1973, that ended the uh, the big two-night run at the Boston Music Hall. Uh, and it's really right towards the end of it, and you're going to get a chance to hear all of this big uh, excitement and climactic buildup that Rob was talking about. And I just can't imagine a better way, you know, to be turned out into the night at the end of two nights of the Grateful Dead than, uh, you know, with a hot morning dew ringing in your ears. So with that, let me say goodbye to everyone. Uh, we will look forward to talking again next week. Uh, enjoy the holidays and of course, enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Thank you. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. How do cannabis CEOs balance growth and optimization strategies? What is THCO, Delta 10, and CBNA, and why should you care about these minor cannabinoids? And why is an endocannabinoid system covered in medical school? Most people think they're up to date in trends in the cannabis industry, but they're about six weeks behind. Learn about what is truly next in the cannabis space by joining myself, Brian Fields, and Kellen Finney every week on the Dime Podcast and, of course, on PodConnects.